Today we'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we consciously place ourselves under your authority this morning, under the authority of your word, knowing that we are always, always under your love. Father, we pray that you would help us to sense your love for us as we open your word so that we might be quick to yield ourselves in obedience to your authority. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, so, did I, am I muted? Are we good now? Uh, ooh, we're good, okay. Uh, so every once in a while, my wife and I will remember ministry and what it was like in the early years. Uh, I've been in ministry uh, for, I think it's 23, 24 years now. And, and we'll often have a good chuckle about early ministry, it's like 1999, and I'm a college pastor in Chicago, Illinois, and we laugh about how bad I was <laughs> at, like, everything. Uh, it, we'd come home from a college event, and I'd be like, how was that? And Lynn's answer was painful. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what part of it? All of it. But watching you try to interact with people is painful. So, if you have ever had a pleasant conversation with me about the weather, your family, your vacation, thank Lynn. She taught me how to do that. <laughs> uh, one of the other things that in those early years, my sermons were long, written out. I, I would labor over every sentence. I wanted them all to be precise, and I would go up with eight, nine, ten pages of notes that I would read from. And Bob, one time at Connection, back in 2006 or 7, challenged me to preach a sermon with no notes. And I took him up on that, and it changed. I, I wasn't so locked into being precise and laboring over every sentence. But today... 
I want to labor. Yeah, you're all groaning. Stop it. Stop it. I just want to labor with you over one sentence. It's a fairly short sentence. Labor with you over one sentence about the meaning of Palm Sunday. And this is family worship. So we have kids in the room with us this morning. Kids, I'm going to ask your help for this first word of our sentence. We're going to construct the sentence word by word. This is a question I know you will know, okay? Who was right? This is permission to shout in big church, okay? So shout it when you know it. Who was riding the donkey into Jerusalem? Thank you. So one of my fears was that it was going to be like no one saying anything. And you're like, come on. Who are the people waving palm leaves for? Jesus. Thank you. (laughs) Jesus. Who is Palm Sunday about? Yes, all right. Two out of three ain't bad. So, the first word of our sentence is Jesus. The story of Palm Sunday, it has children in the story. They're an important part of the story. But the story isn't about the children. It's about Jesus who welcomed the children. And the Story has crowds singing Jesus' praises, but the story isn't about the crowds. It's about Jesus who is worthy of the crowd's praises. The story of Palm Sunday is a story of a man born in a backwater region of the Roman Empire into an oppressed minority, poor, worked a blue-collar job for most of his life, started a ministry to the fringes of society and with the fringes. He didn't recruit his disciples from the Kelly School of Business or from Jerusalem Leaders University, fishermen and tax collectors. The story of Palm Sunday is about a man who displaying no militaristic tendencies or political ambitions grew to be seen as a threat to the establishment. The story of Palm Sunday is a story about a man walking a dirt road or riding a dirt road into an ancient city. And it's a story about why that man remains relevant 2,000 years later. Jesus is the subject of our sentence we offer a second word, it's another noun, Christ. Christ is a Greek word which translates the Old Testament word, Hebrew word, Messiah. Both Christ and Messiah mean anointed one. The prophets throughout the Old Testament were pointing the nation of Israel forward and building expectation in the nation of Israel for an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ who would come and save his people. And in this original Palm Sunday, Jesus steps into the prophecy about Messiah and takes it on himself. 
Imagine uh, someone is at an airport, Indianapolis airport, to, to pick up a speaker for an event. They don't know this person. They're told, go pick up Dr. Baker. And Dr. Baker is a distinguished gentleman, tall, horn-rimmed glasses, gray hair, and he'll be wearing an IU jacket with his name, Dr. Baker, on it. And someone walks up to this person, and the person's holding a sign saying, Dr. Baker, and they walk up and they say, I'm Dr. Baker. And they say, well, I don't, I'm not sure you're the right Dr. Baker. He says, well, what does your Dr. Baker look like? Well, he's tall, wears horn-rimmed glasses, has gray hair, and he's wearing an IU jacket with his name on it. The man says, well, I'm tall, I have gray hair, and horn-rimmed glasses. The other man says, well, well, you're not wearing a jacket with an IU jacket with your name on it. So the man puts down his suitcase and puts on a jacket that says Dr. Baker. (laughs) Now you've got the right man. In this moment, Jesus is enacting a scene from the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9. Jesus has come. The people have been waiting for Messiah. And Jesus has come and he said, I am Messiah. I am Christ. And the people are like, huh? And Jesus says, well, what will Christ be like? Will he be born in Bethlehem? According to the prophet Micah. Okay, check. Well, according to Isaiah, he'll be born of a virgin. That does limit the field. (laughs) Jesus says, check. He'll preach the good news to the poor, check. He'll give sight to the blind, check. He'll heal the deaf and the mute and the lame, check, check, check. Well, Zechariah says he'll come to us humble riding on a donkey. And Jesus says, hey, you two disciples, go and get a donkey. It's got my name on it. Jesus is stepping into this prophecy and saying, I am the one that Zechariah was talking about. I am the figure. I am Messiah. I am Christ. It's so interesting. If you go back to the original prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, the prophet does this thing where the voices are switching all throughout this chapter. It starts off in the first person, God, saying, I will encamp in my temple. I will keep watch. But then it switches, and the voice changes. Your king comes to you riding on a donkey. And then it switches back again. I, God, will take away the chariots and the war horses. And again it switches. He, your king, will proclaim peace to the nations. As you read Zechariah chapter 9, you're left wondering, is it God? Is it this king? And the answer is, Yes. In Jesus, the two meet. God and man are our perfect Messiah King. And Jesus is saying, I am Messiah. I am God on a donkey. I am the one that you've been waiting for. It's our second word. Our third word you might think is kind of a throwaway word. It's not. It's the word the. Jesus, the Christ. 
See, there's a difference between saying Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player to ever live and saying Colby Bryant was one of the greatest to ever play the game and saying LeBron James is a great basketball player. There's a difference, right? Jesus is the Christ. He is in a category all by himself. There is no other Christ. There is no other Messiah. He is singular, one and only, utterly unique. He warns that there would be messianic pretenders, false Christs, false messiahs, and there are those who would want to to diminish Christ and say, well, he was a good rabbi, a good religious leader, one of the greatest. No. The Christ, the Messiah, the one and only. Not merely a manifestation of Christ, the Christ. So John, the apostle, at the end of his book, says these things are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, three words down. Jesus, the Christ. Another noun, king. King. The passage that was read comes from the Gospel of Matthew. If you go back to the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, there's a passage that you might skip often. It's a genealogy. They're not that fun to read, but they're important. Matthew traces Jesus' lineage to David, king of Israel, making the point that Jesus is a son of David, a legitimate king. Luke makes the same point. And here on this first Palm Sunday, the crowds are singing, chanting, Hosanna, save us we pray, son of David. Acclaiming Jesus as the king that they have been waiting for, the king who comes to save. See, Messiah, Christ, is a, not just a religious figure, but a kingly, royal figure. And Jesus steps into this and says, I am he. Now, we don't live in a world with many real monarchies anymore, right? We've got limited monarchies, constitutional monarchies, where the king or the queen's authority is very limited, mostly ceremonial. We've got them in the U.K., Uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, Japan. There is no limit to Jesus' kingly rule. No limit to his authority. It is absolute. This week in our Thursday pastor's staff meeting, we were talking about an old Dutch theologian You really want to be a part of those meetings, don't you? (laughs) His name was Abraham Kuyper. He wrote a lot. He did a lot. He's known for one sentence, pretty much. 
He said there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. No limit to his authority. Think about that. My eyes, my ears, what I see, what I hear, my hands, my feet, what I do, where I go, my mind, my heart, my identity. I lay these all at the throne of King Jesus. He has authority over them all. My dreams, my ambitions, my fears, my health, my illness, all under the sovereign reign of Christ. My loves, my hates, my friendships, my relationship with my spouse, my sons, your daughters, all under Jesus' authority. My work, my fun, my rest, I do them in service to King Jesus. My city, my nation, my world, realms under Jesus' domain. My living, my dying, Jesus cries, mine. All authority is given to King Jesus. Which makes the next word really, really important. Next word is humble. Humble. Jesus the King doesn't come in a bulletproof limousine. Not in a private jet. Not in a chariot. Not in a war horse. But on a donkey. The foal of a donkey. And notice, it's not his donkey. He had to borrow it. A a phrase that stood out to me, that slapped me in the face this week, like never before, comes in verse 3. Jesus sends two disciples. He says, take the donkey, and if anyone says anything, say, the Lord needs them. The Lord needs. Uh, He who owns the cattle on a thousand hills needs. He who hung the stars in their place, measured out the seas, created all things, and it is for him and from him and to him that all things exist. He needs. Why? Because he has humbled himself to the place of a servant. A poor, walking, dirt streets servant for us. He came as king not to be served, but to serve. And he needs to borrow a donkey. This is so important because we live in a world where we are accustomed to bad use of authority. 
authority that is misused, authority that is used to take advantage of, abuse, self-centered, egomaniacal authority. And our reaction to even the right use of authority now is to recoil. Because we're so used to bad authority. But the right answer for bad authority isn't no authority. It's good authority. There is no better authority than humble King Jesus. Kind and gentle Humble and lowly. We've got, what, five words? Two left. We need a verb. Verb is is. I don't like this verb. I labored over this verb, really. Rain. Now, I picked is because it doesn't just tell us what Jesus does but who he is. Not just a title he has, but who he is. It's a being verb. Jesus is our king. Not was, not will be. Is in the present. Is now, currently, reigning. A confession of late, I have been consumed by worry. It's a new thing for me. I've lived most of my 48 years fairly carefree. I don't know why, maybe it's age. I hear a noise in my front end of my car, and I worry. I I worry about the decisions my sons are making. Not that they're making bad ones, but they're making big ones. Uh, I worry about my mom. I worry about my brother. I worry about your worries. I worry about the church. I worry about the nation. It's not just a thing. It's more a mood of worry. And I have to hear myself say it again and again. Jesus is reigning. There's nothing I'm worrying about that isn't under his authority. There's nothing I'm worrying about that he doesn't know and care more about than me. Jesus is reigning. Our last word needs something else is our. He's our humble king. This original prophecy from Zechariah 9 that Jesus steps into was addressed to you, Israel. But all through the prophets, you get this indication that this coming king, this Messiah, Savior king, wasn't just for Israel. It was for the nations, for the world. And then you get to the New Testament, and beautifully the New Testament authors say, those Old Testament prophets, they weren't just writing for their sake, but for your sake. Jesus is offering himself as your king. 
He's our king, our humble, gentle king, who has established a season of salvation. And he is saying to all of us, come to the king. Come and find forgiveness. Trust the king. Live loyally to the king. Give your all, every aspect of your life and self to the king. Have you done that? Have you yielded yourself, bowed the knee to King Jesus? Christian, uh, are you holding something back, some area of your life, something that you haven't yet submitted to Jesus? Uh, Are you on the fence, not quite wanting yet to submit your life to Jesus? Consider where he's going where this road that is lined with palm branches is taking him. Consider where he is steering that donkey into Jerusalem, into betrayal, into ridicule, into a beating and torture. He's moving quite intentionally as your humble king towards a sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing cross for you. If you're waffling between two opinions, should I, shouldn't I? Yes. Submit your life to King Jesus. He is humble. He is kind. He has laid down his life for you. This is our sentence. It's not a complicated sentence, but it gets us to the meaning of Palm Sunday. Jesus, the anointed one, it has come as our humble king. And our response is to say, yes, Lord Jesus, we submit to your reign and your rule. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful. We are grateful that you free us from bondage to our own authority. Free us from our illusions of autonomy. You say to us, you are submitted to something. Please, please come and submit to me. I love you. You love the world so much that you came to go to a cross. You are worthy of the praise, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Would it resound from your people this morning and throughout the week from lives that are submitted to you as our king. In Jesus' name, amen.